Hey guys, this is Kike with Psyche Podcast. I'm really excited to share this special episode with you today. I got the unique privilege to sit down with five other guys to discuss Mark Murphy's new book, The Direction of Desire, John of the Cross, Jacques Lacan, and the Contemporary Understanding of Spiritual Direction. So in addition to Mark Murphy, there was Andrew Flores, David Roberts, Luke Grote, and Cadell Last. All those guys are super smart and interesting and had some great things to contribute to the conversation. I think you're really going to enjoy this one if you're into Lacanian psychoanalysis and Christian mysticism. As always, I would hope that you would share this episode with friends and people in your life that might benefit from it. If you have a quick moment, I always appreciate it if you can go to Apple Podcast or Spotify and leave me a positive rating and review. This was episode 149, and I'm hoping to do one more episode before the end of the year. I think I'm scheduled to speak to one of my old professors from one of my graduate programs, and we're going to be focusing on one of his great interests, which is Alfred Adler. You know, Carl Jung separated from Freud, but so did Adler. And I, and I don't feel like Adler gets enough attention. Uh, he's very important to the world of psychotherapy. So I can't wait to have that conversation with him. And it should be a, a great time together. I hope you're having a great holiday season. And as always, I want to encourage you to continue the conversation. guys for being a part of this special episode on psyche podcast uh the intended goal today is to discuss mark murphy's new book the direction of desire john of the cross jacques lacan and the contemporary understanding of spiritual direction so before we jump into the conversation um i thought we'd go ahead maybe clockwise starting with you andrew and just maybe say a little bit about who you are and what your interest is in kind of spiritual direction or Jacques Lacan or just Mark in general, and then we can uh, jump into the conversation after everyone kind of gives a brief introduction. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's perfect. Um, yeah, so uh, I'm Andrew, uh, Andrew Flores. Uh, I'm a autodidact specifically in Lacanian psychoanalysis, or as I would kind of label myself, Freudo-Marxism, um, and getting uh, my, my hands dirty in uh, theology as well. Uh, not just in theory, but also in practice. Um, I am a, a practicing Catholic, and I'm under uh, the spiritual direction of, uh, you know, uh, the main uh, guest, Mark Gerard Murphy. So um, my interests are in psychoanalysis, both on the clinic and, um, you know, how it's relevant in philosophy from thinkers like Slavoj Žižek, uh, Lorenzo Chiesa, uh, and like the Ljubljana School, Um as well as like how it could assist in social theory and um, theology. I have a podcast or YouTube channel called The Vanishing Mediators. Uh, I'm one half of it. The other half is Nick Casalucci, where we break down um, all the seminars of Jacques Lacan. We're currently on seminar three on psychosis. And um, yeah, pretty much like I just said, I'm uh, under the spiritual direction of Mark. And so I think one of the great things is not only, you know, am I currently reading his book, but also engaging in dialogue with him um, 
you know, about my uh, relationship with psychoanalysis uh, in theory as an analyst and, and how I see it tie in with the concepts of his book and how I see it apply with my life in spiritual direction and questions concerning God, um, desire, um, truth, etc. So um, I'm really excited to to have everybody on here and, and express what they feel, you know, in relation to reading Mark's work as well. So it's good to not be the only one with Mark. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Thank you so much for that. Okay. Mark, would you say, I know you've been on the podcast a few times, but maybe for any new listeners, just a, a few brief comments on kind of who you are and, you know, maybe why you're interested in this. Um, yeah, sure. Uh, so I, I, um, <clears throat> I currently work at uh, St. Mary's University um, in, in, in Twickenham and the Gillis Centre. They've just opened a small campus in the Gillis Centre. And I bomb down to Scotland um, every week uh, to go and teach courses on uh, Christian psychology. Uh, sorry, Christian spirituality and psychology and foundations in Christian spirituality, mystical theology and philosophy. And uh, I did my PhD under under Peter Tyler at St Mary's University, and uh, my my overarching focus is has always been on on the con on the question of language and formation of the subject, and that and how that works in relation to theological questions with a pastoral orientation. So one of the goals in my work in the book, The Direction of Desire, was to take talking seriously in spiritual direction. Uh, and Because I found that um, many manuals in spiritual direction, they emphasize the importance of listening and whatnot. But there are very few texts that um, regard spiritual direction in, in regards to it that, that, that examine language at a theoretical or, you know, proper level. So I wanted to do something um, in spiritual direction, the work uh, that takes language seriously and takes language in relation to desire and the formation of the subject. And because of that, I took it in relation to John of the Cross specifically. So yeah, I'll say a little bit more about that, but that that's, that's me. Yeah, no, that's great, Mark. Thank you. David, would you mind going next? Sure, yeah. Uh, I'm David Roberts. I am a uh, minister at a Protestant non-denominational church in Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, I do not remember. Was it TK? Was it David Congdon that connected us originally? Um, I don't know. I don't know. So, I can't remember. Well, it, way, it might have I been. Followed I had followed Kike's podcast for a while. That's how I became aware of, of, of Mark, actually. Um, and just noticed a lot of intersecting interests, both on the, the uh, psychoanalytic and theoretical side. Um, in the last maybe four or five years, I've started to get into uh, Freud and Lacan and Zizek. Um, Todd McGowan was kind of my gateway into all of that. Uh, he's become a friend kind of just through those correspondences and then the intersection of that, that work and, and theology and, and, and pastoral theology. So, um, so in that sense, uh, the subject matter of, of, of Mark's book is, is very relevant, even, even if he's coming at it from more of a Catholic perspective. And I'm, 
uh, coming in as a, as a heathen. And so, uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, I've been working my way through the book since it came out and been following, uh, Mark on X formerly known as Twitter. And, uh, yeah, I'm appreciative that Kike invited me into the conversation. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being here. I'm, I'm excited about your contribution. Okay. Would you mind going Luke? Hi, my name is, uh, Luke Grote. Um, I recently completed a PhD at Drew University. I uh, studied under Catherine Keller. Um, and uh, my dissertation was uh, on the intersection of Lacanian theory and Zen Buddhism. Um, I've just been devoting myself to Mark's book for the past several days. I haven't made all the way through it, uh, but I love it. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's it uses Lacan very differently from the way I, I think I used the, Mark breaks it down to different Lacans. I was very much the philosophical Lacan. And I actually tried to, um, there are, there's a lot of like sociology behind Lacan and necessary for Lacan. Uh, you know, with the the big other and law and language. And I kind of filled in the sociology behind that's kind of there in the con, but not explicit. Uh, so I did more of a philosophical and sociological approach to Lacan and uh, talked about uh, uh, using Zen Buddhism, uh, a way of getting be beyond the language. But um, I found Marx's work to be a helpful corrective. You know, if, if we're if we're a part of the big other big other is both out there deeply inhabits us and there really is no way of getting otherly outside of language mm -hmm. uh or outside of desire um so uh you know i found marks just a really uh helpful uh uh alternative vantage point for uh using lacan and spirituality and uh certainly more uh consonant with a Western uh, spirituality than mine is. And I took a, a different approach where I, 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 uh, I combined the philosophical Lacan with a more Eastern transdiscursive uh, spirituality. Um, and I don't think uh, actually what we're doing is mutually exclusive, but like I said, uh, Mark has helped me to sort of correct, I, I was correct some of my overstatement uh, and I'm appreciative of that. That's awesome. Thank you for that. Yeah. Okay. Maybe Cadell, you could go last and then we can jump into the conversation. Pun, in, pun intended. Ah, no, <laughs> didn't even notice that. I like it. No, no, no. It was good. So I'm, I'm, I guess the, the creator and founder of philosophy portal. Um, I uh, just actually have been spending the, the fall teaching Lacanzi Cree. Um, I fell down this rabbit hole back in, suppose it was 2014 through, through Zizek, um, and sort of been following that rabbit hole ever since. Um, I guess my main interest uh, in psychoanalysis uh, and Lacan is, is more from the philosophical angle. Uh, I'm interested in philosophy. I'm interested in philosophy after psychoanalysis, or rather philosophy that's that's moved through psychoanalysis. Um and and some of the consequences that that might have for social analysis, politics, religion, and um, 
I was actually engaged Mark uh, Mark Gerard Murphy's book. We had a conversation about it, and and one of the main reasons I was interested in it was for one of those reasons. I'm I'm just interested in the practical application of analysis beyond the clinic, and and specifically there with Mark's uh, engagement with theology and religion. Um, I think it's very important, and um, you know, I, I thought a lot of things that that just got brought up here in the introductions were were very fascinating, and perhaps in particular, I think this intersection between the difference between Eastern and Western approaches of spirituality might be something that that we could dig into. But um, really happy to be here, and and thanks for your work, Mark. No, 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 I, no, thank you so much. And thank you. I want to say thank you for everyone for taking the time to read it. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, I know it's, uh, there's, there's parts of it that are dry, you know, and, uh, there's a nest, there's an, an, you know, there's a nest, there's something ne necessary about that. But, um, I, you know, taking the time really to go out and read the book because I know it's not cheap either, you know, but, uh, I'm very appreciative and, uh, thank you for having me here. Yeah, absolutely. So for anyone who's listened to me before or has been a part of the podcast, you know that I'm really not heavy handed or, or too strong in like the direction I, I want it to be kind of collaborative. But but I do think there's a place that we could start, which kind of captures a few things that, that Mark gets into in the book. This is actually a quote from your book, Mark. And um, I'll kind of throw out the quote and then maybe you guys can kind of pick some pieces that you think would be interesting to explore. So you say, my argument is centered on the assertion that revisiting a more fundamental conception of desire within the practice of spiritual direction would necessitate rejecting the experientialist foundations that underpinned our current worldview. And, and so there's a few things there that I think are quite important to your argument. Is, um, so yeah, for us, and I, 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 I want to be clear when, you know, with this, but because I think, uh, you know, when I presented this at, at various other other places people think i'm having a pop at experience as such and i'm not i'm not having a pop at experience it would be silly to to do that what i'm having um a critique of in in the in the practice of spiritual direction is experientialism experientialism and specifically uh the commodification of experientialism and what i do at the beginning of the work is try and trace why this has happened, what's going on there. You know, and, and generally you can sort of see a split in the practice of theology. And if you go back to the pre-modern times, yeah, the, the the connection between what we call then mystical theology and uh, theology proper, that they weren't pulled apart. You know, and it's like we were talking just a second ago. We're talking about the separation of, you know, philosophy over here, and uh, sp this thing called spirituality here. But you know, you go back to the pre-modern world, uh, and there's a great book that's just come out called "Philosophy: uh, Philosophy is a um, Right of Birth." It's come out. It's an excellent piece. Uh, it, it traces. Uh, it tries to make the connection of pre of philosophy as such, not so much to the. Um, uh, the Hellenic world, but the Egyptian world, but the larger argument is is one that says you know philosophy is a practice, and that practice is one that's necessarily caught up in a spirituality. And so, spirituality and philosophy and theology, they there were there was a proximity to them. And so, what we you know, and I think most people are familiar 
to the arguments is that over time, as we approach modernity, uh, the, the 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 stated goals of philosophy become smaller. And, you know, in, after Kant and before you know Descartes and whatnot, the ability to reach God with rationality, or even to be able to state that our actions can lead to the good, uh, that that becomes sort of severed. We we the goals of philosophy sort of start to roll back, and so you get this split. You get this split. So theology ends up over here. It's all about thinking about God, rationality, and uh, the role of rationality in uh, justifying our faith. And then we've got this sort of ethereal thing over here, this thing called spirituality that's to do with the effect, which is to do with feelings. Um, and then what happens, I argue, is that uh, you there's the readers, the psychology starts to appear you know psychology the role of psychology you know, um and uh, and then psychology starts speaking about spirituality it starts um giving new life to it and we can see you know, with, with william james for you know william james is the is a key figure but also people like carl jung as well i was teaching a class on about carl jung the other day um and he takes the language of spirituality and gives it new life in this, you know, this framework. You know, speaking about things like numinosity, healing, wholeness, and that's all you know, really, really important. But um, what I wanted to do with my work is is I wanted to be able to give what can what can be uh, is a cultural linguistic understanding of spiritual direction that doesn't necessarily see um, a, a massive separation between these things of philosophy and theology. It's the idea of trying to reinvigorate uh, spiritual direction as a living philosophy. And that means one, for me, taking into account uh, our formation in language. Now, <clears throat> every spiritual director I've met Every spiritual director, I'm sure people here who has anyone here else in here been to a, seen a spiritual director or, or been in a spiritual formation? No, I haven't. I don't Usually, find most are trained in psychology or have um, a training in psychology. And um, you know, this it, it's it's it, it's it's normal and, it, and it's it's good. You know, it's it's an important thing. You know, if you're dealing, I think it's an old statement by um, Ignatius of Loyola. Who says spiritual direction or spiritual formation? I can't find this quote specifically, but you know, bear with me here. It's uh, he says it's serious talk about serious things, and if you're you know engaging in you know uh, our, our our relationship to God and deepening our faith and our prayer life, then you know having the tools of psychology are important. You know because we'll have you know regardless we could have malformed images of God, we have certain symptoms that hinder our prayer life or or whatever. Uh, it's the idea that a, a spiritual director or someone who's a spiritual guide would have training in some form of psychology. Now, what's interesting, what I found is that if you went to go and speak to those who do philosophical theology, or you treat or those who do systematic theology, they would all have understanding or, or a grip on Lacan, right? 
you go because there's a you know a big part of philosophical theology is dealing with the role of language and our how we are how uh, our language relates to God, our relation our language um, in relation to our subjectivity. But when you go to pastoral theology, that there is no Lacan. It doesn't. He does not exist. He's it, it's not there. I remember you know going to speak to a spiritual director's conference, and so I said I said I'm doing my. My PhD thesis on psychoanalysis and John of the Cross. And um, psychoanal- I said, oh, what psychoanalyst are you interested in? And um, I said, oh, Lacan said, oh, I'm not, in, I'm not a philosopher. You know? So it's automatically brushed up because, but that's about the reception of Lacan in the Anglophone world, right? It's about the reception of Lacan in the Anglophone world. The reception of Lacan in the Anglophone world is mainly through uh, I wouldn't say you know, uh, it's through a certain understanding of philosophy, not necessarily through philosophy departments, right? Because our departments are ultimately analytic, the other kind of analytic, right? It's uh, but they mainly come through so like English literature departments, um, media studies, um, and you know aspects, as I said, of the, of the high, uh, the more highbrow aspects of. <laughs> Of theology, you know, systematic theology, philosophical theology, that's where that Lacan is going to come in. At the pastoral end of theology, there is no Lacan. And so my book was about correcting that. But that meant ultimately looking at Lacan from a clinical perspective. You know, what is the practice of Lacan? What is the practice of Lacan in the clinic? And can this form of listening, can this form of listening be of use? in the careful listening of spiritual direction. And this, if I was to bring Lacan in, yes, it means that, may, is it a question of um, completely, you know, uh, revamping our anthropology, our Christian anthropology? What does it mean to be a human being? What does that mean? And I don't I don't think it, it is, because there's plenty of theology there that already looks at uh, a linguistic conception of of the Christian subject, you know, there's a, if you like, for instance, um, there's the work of uh, Catherine Pickstock, right? Uh, what's the um, the word? No, it's not uh, after right. Uh, uh, it's um, after right, not after writing. It's called. Is it truth after Aquinas? No, no, it's, no. it's another. I, f- I forget. Um, my name's gone out my head. But there's also people like John Milbank, um, who argues that. This idea of relationality preceding or coming before essence is not an odd thing in Christianity. That's the one after writing. Thank you. Um, It's not an odd thing because God is first and foremost a relation, you know, the Trinity. And then from here on after that, you know, we have uh, the the various hypostases within this. And so this, uh, and then obviously we have great, um, great thinkers within what we call the grammatical Thomas tradition, Fergus Kerr. Uh, we have uh, Herbert McCabe, and even now recently a really excellent book that's just I've just read, really really great, Rowan Williams' um, Edge of Words. But even then, even people like Dennis Turner, The Darkness of God, which was a massive influence on me. Now, the thing is, these great works, these theological works that focus on the subject and the language and its relation to God, how God is not 
an object in the world, an ostensive definition, but as ultimately something completely beyond it. These um, these uh, theological formulations don't really pass over into pastoral theology. So my work was being able to argue or to try and you've heard of the, the Lutheran theologian, George Lindbeck. Um, he, he gives a typology. He talks about you've got uh, you know, three major conceptions of what we can call Christian doctrine. The first is uh, what he calls the cognitive propositional model, which is, you know, the traditionalist idea, you know, like an almost vulgar realist idea. Yeah, I suppose in some sense we could call it, you know, sense immediacy, this idea. Right? I, my, I can prove God exists in a certain way. My rationality latches onto things and I can ostensibly say what they are. You know, it's a very straightforward understanding and, you know, it's uh, one that uh, defines a traditionalist metaphysics. And then he argues this sort of falls away. And what you find is a, a shrinking of theology and the goals of theology to become more focused on the effect. And he calls this the liberal experientialist model. And it's typified by theologians like Friedrich Schleiermacher, uh, but also people like Paul Tillich. And it's the idea that, you know, uh, we we have uh, an effective understanding. And then from this effective encounter, we then give symbolic expression to this, right? My argument generally is that if you look at most forms of spiritual direction today, is that it's it's locked here. It's locked here. Not only that, it's very much uh, modern capitalism and what we can call the experience economy and how that segues into the larger attention economy. It's uh, it, it sort of attenuates it. It turns it into nothing more than a type of um, the asset. Well, I'm not going to be too, but it, it can. It becomes very self-helpified. <laughs> If that makes sense, self-helpified, it becomes all about experientialism, but not just about attaining a experience. Even people like Rudolf Otto had greater ideas and much wider experience. It becomes a very, it's all about just attaining a positive experience, the psychologization of spirituality as such. So I argue that, you know, we can see much of pastoral theology is very much located here. And then he argues he argues that we have he's arguing for a what's called a cultural linguistic understanding now this is not to say that the, the um um his arguments his um um his his work is not without problem because there's all uh, there, there is always what we call the limits of narrative there is the limits of narrative and we can talk about the senselessness of the signifier you know lacan is one, one of the great things about lacan is precisely this and so uh what I wanted to do is I wanted to be able to bring in some of the uh, the theology of a cultural linguistic understanding of the subject and how um, and how this uh, uh, how this relates to spiritual formation, but also looking at how l the limits of narrative in relation to that qua the apophatic tradition. You know, this and Dennis Turner, as I said, was great in this because he speaks not about John of the Cross, uh, because he he argues that there's been a psychologization of John of the Cross, but he's very much arguing it within the remit of um 
of, of philosophical theology, saying that people think he is arguing about attaining some type of uh, dark, sublime experience, or there is a psychologization of, of the dark, what we call the dark night of the soul. And so therefore it ends up just about this expression of depression. And uh, what he says is that this isn't what he's about at all. What John is trying to get at is not trying to articulate a dark experience, but rather giving a poetic expression to the darkness of experience itself. And in that uh, poetic expression, there is a type of freedom attained. And I wanted to be able to, to show um, how this, I mean, I remember a while ago, I went to a conference and I was presenting some of the work. And one of the things that I was, you know, very, I, I think that one of the goals of spiritual direction is to help people uh, encounter this dark night, right? Uh, or, or the dark night, to be able to, um, to tarry with it. I think it's important. I think that, the, and, you know, we can speak about this in terms of metaphor of the Christian desert, um, the desert fathers. Or whatever. And I remember someone saying to me, I thought this is very, very dangerous, you know, the, to make someone have the dark night. Oh, but what the 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 problem in framing it this way is that it they were framing the dark night as some sort of you know ineffable encounter where everything falls away and you know you're hit with some uh sublime opaque reality you cannot fully understand. And I think that that in itself is not what it's about. I follow a lot of the work of, of Nicholas Lash here is that they talked about Easter and ordinary. We talk with, and also um, Andrew Prevot. He, talk, he talks about the idea of East, um, a, 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 a mysticism of the ordinary. And that's what I, and I, and I believe one of the aspects of, of um, spiritual direction is to help people uncover that aspect of themselves, that aspect of their language that helps them to be able to undo certain perspectives that they have about God, about prayer life. And through this process, they can achieve well, what Lacan calls a scant freedom. Um, so, yeah, that's that's the... Uh, uh, I've written some uh, a thing here that I, uh, I've put down or summarise some of the points here. But it's um, I said... My research indicated that many spiritual directors are committed to a psychological forms that do not emphasize language formation. Rather, there is more of a focus on the centrality of experience. Experience comes first, then language. They thus focus on understanding experience as occurring beyond language in a conjectural internal space within the subject. Moreover, this experience becomes loaded with certain psychological tropes that conflate healing, wholeness, numinosity. So if we consider language as an integral part of our ensoulment, as, as per McCabe and, and others who have just mentioned, then spiritual direction must seriously engage with our existence as speak, speaking bodies, or what you know, Lacan calls parlette. It must begin with the understanding that we are beings who communicate. Therefore, I, I aim to present uh, a cultural linguistic perspective on spiritual direction with all caveats about the limits of narrative. 
that focuses on our language, how our desire is interwoven in our dialogical relationships and linguistic practices with others and the world, and how it expands into an, an abundance that we, we, we can refer to as God. And this also meant that to maintain this linguistic formative emphasis, I needed a psychoanalytic method that facilitates this without impeding the process. Simply put, if I adopt a cultural linguistic approach to spiritual formation, then the psychological approach that functions as a complementary tool should not be liberal experiential, as classified by Lindbeck's typology. So that's why I picked uh, Lacan and John of the Cross, both on the emptying of the subject and are both are uh, suspicious of experience as being an arbiter for truth. John warns of consolations, whilst Lacan uh, saw a danger in giving an overemphasis to the imaginary aspect. Does that does that make sense? Sir? Yeah, no, that's really great, and I think there's a lot in there. I'm I'm wanting to open it up to whoever may have a question or or something that you want to kind of tease out from from what Mark said. Yeah, please, Andrew. Yeah, Mark. So, I mean, we've talked about this multiple times, but I think maybe to elaborate on the position between Lacan um, language, uh, the subject of the dark night of the soul in um, John of the Cross, um, I guess, how how would you situate um, Lacan's use of the registers, not only in spiritual direction, but also in uh the thesis you propose because as you're saying like the arguments that you're contending against are those of locating um the subject of spiritual direction and uh god on this reduction of feeling and experientialism which i find analogous to lacan when saying that the subject's not the ego the subject's not the i um and like in seminar two he criticizes leclerc and he calls him a little idolater of the subject and he's like, you know, I only put the subject in this model just to make it use useful when the subject is non-localizable. And it seems like what you're arguing against is a type of spiritual direction that seems to be localizing what would be a point for uh, realizing God, experiencing God or this ex- mystical experience with a subject that is localizable on what would we call like an imaginary plane to yeah. use? No, no, that's precise. I, I, and, you know, I should have mentioned this as well. It's, it's the question of, uh, you, you know, we have, you know, people go to spiritual direction. You sit down and uh, you speak, and you, there's a demand placed upon the direct the director, and the director is supposed to give you a nice snippet, some piece of advice that is handed back to the subject. That's located there, and we know it's you know who they are, and then they have that. They get uh, some gratification. They go away. They come back again, and it happens again and again. I think there's a really really good book that's recently just just come out by uh, Mark de Cassel as well. That's precisely about this, this question of the relation of 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 spirituality and the effacing of the subject. That's called the effacing of the self. That's just come out, but it's precisely this. You know, I think people come to spiritual direction precisely to uh, inflate the 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 self or the I 
in a dyadic relationship. And you know, you can get end up with people getting attached, you know, and there's aspects of transference that go wrong. You know, it's and and it's the the whole point of of spiritual direction is precisely to realize that this dyadic aspect, this you know, the, the it needs to give way to the third. Um, and that third to focus on the other, the symbolic order does mean ultimately that the ego falls away and, and falls away, or there is a questioning of the eye, and there is uh and uh a mutual entertaining of uncertainty there has to be and and so i don't know if that quite answers your question but it's 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 um it, 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 we're talking about the three registers the uh, the imaginary the symbolic and the real and you know where we where we in spiritual direction the process is always i think to and even if you read like you know john of the cross you know, he's, he he constantly reminds. Obviously, he's not using the language that we utilize today. You know, we're using in, in like Lacanian terms, but he says constantly we need to be able to remember that the primary director is not, uh, you know, the sub uh, the um. It's not the director, nor is it about you know giving in to the directee or or whatever. But it's about the focus on the presence and discernment. Discernment is the key of. Uh, the presence of the Holy Spirit. So it's that, um, you, know, you know, transferring that to a Lacanian key. It's about always remembering that in in and out in analysis. As soon as you give way to the dyadic, then you're you're, you're as you know you you put very succinctly there. It can fall into a type of idolatry of the subject. Does that answer your question? So- right, right, and especially it it does, and especially just to kind of like top off like what we've talked about with like my questions concerning like the theological turn in in phenomenology with people like Jean-Luc Marion who want to eradicate a metaphysics metaphysics of presence but with the saturation of the phenomenon in this like sort of Husserlian phenomenological subject it seems like this uh question concerning God even if it's groundless or in the gaps seems to come up in Things that seem to locate in a in an imaginarized form, bracketed think, in perception I, and stuff like that. I think the overemphasis on on feeling, you know, when people come is precisely in many ways uh, uh, the overinflation of feeling as a type of arbiter of truth is precisely because of the gap that's left because of a failure in metaphysics. You know, it's to, it's to do with that fact. You know, it's to do with the fact that because we um, we know we have to be more humble in our in terms of what we can expect metaphysics to achieve, even if you know, from a say Marion or the phenomenological tradition, to automatically be suspicious of it altogether. Then there has to be a focus elsewhere in terms of how we're talking about God. And so, yes, people will ultimately come to, to spiritual direction with these with 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 larger questions about how that that unfolds in their life and that will come in terms of a relationship to experience. Yeah. David, I know at some point you have to hop off. So I wanted to make sure that you had a chance to, you know, ask a question or explore something with Mark. Yeah. 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 I probably have got, I mean, it'll depend on how quickly my kids uh, get home from school. <laughs> I get that. My house will become an untenable place for recording. Our house death. is always full of, 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 of <laughs> you know, uh, massive, big Irish families. So I, I, I'm always half expecting the kids to bomb through the door here. You know? 
so 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 it might happen we'll see but but um yeah i can jump in here so what i have experienced in, in, in so far uh, as i've gotten in the book and, and just listening to mark kind of unpack it further um so in my context like i said it's a, it's 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 uh protestant non, non-denominational and i would call it um progressive uh kind of post evangelical most of our folks are coming out of more uh, evangelical protestant uh, context in the united states um there is not a lot of um there's there's not a lot of interest in in what I think I might call like proper spiritual direction, um, but there's a ton of interest in sort of this um, sort of like quasi merging or synthesis between um, a spiritualized like uh, cognitive behavioral therapy or psychology, and so my challenge, especially as I've you know you know gotten deeper into uh, psychoanalysis and Lacan and some of that. Um, if I'm having a one-on-one conversation with someone and and sort of poking and prodding into some of the assumptions uh, that they simply take for granted when it comes to um, uh, just their experience in, uh, psycho- uh, in, in in therapy or or their experience in the world or what they're inundated with in their life and social media and their relationships, um, you know, undermining and, and drawing uh, questions around this sort of experientialist longing for wholeness and fulfillment and positivity. Mm-hmm. Epiphanies are had. Where it gets tough for me is, um, you know, in a in a in a preaching setting or in a teaching setting when I have a larger group of people, and there is just this addiction, obsession, even defensive, you know, circle the wagons around sort of protecting positivity, protecting this sort of experiential pursuit of wholeness, um, and at that point, the the, the the jargon and the inaccessibility, like, you know, of, of, uh, Lacanian thought and just other psychoanalytic thinkers. I mean, folks like Zizek and even more so like, like Todd McGowan make that stuff more accessible. Um, but I think one of my biggest just personal pastoral challenges is, um, expanding the application of, of, of some of these ideas in this work outside of just one-on-one discipleship conversations, which is maybe, you know, a spiritual direction. This is maybe more what that's geared towards to the broader sort of pastoral office. Mm-hmm. No, no, I think that this is a really interesting, and I think, so you have, and we've, we, this has already come up, the, the split subject of Lacan, mm-hmm. you know, it's the, it's the, 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 uh, heavy f- philosoph- philosophy, um, you know, the, the, the jargon film aspect of Lacan as you know a theoretician and you know as a deeply systematic and you know huge theoretician. And you know, if you're trying to, if someone's coming up to you with theological questions about about wholeness and you know they have a predisposition for it, and that's where they are in their journey and whatnot. And then you are going to hit them with a whole bunch of of Lacanian. It doesn't do much. It's it's it, it doesn't uh, have much much effect. Yes, it might you know cause some type of philosophical interest and stuff, but usually it's oh okay, yeah it's not. And so even getting people to to make the connection, the theological connection, and even if people in theology, you know, you'll get people who are really interested in Lacan, and you know they they understand the quite. But when it comes to their spiritual life, there's no there's no movement between the two. It's like spirit, as someone said, remember doing this spirituality for the systematic theologian is like brushing your teeth. <laughs> it's just sort of something that happens. 
So making that leap, even at a theological level of trying to utilize Lacan as a clinical practitioner is something different. And, you know, this is what I was uh, speaking to my students, you know, about you know, trying to, um, you know, talk to them about what's the use of Lacan. It's so difficult, but in practice, it's just a form of listening. It's, it's uh, yeah, Bruce Fink says it. What is it? It's a listening sideways. You know, it's a, what are you bringing to them? And, you know, there's been plenty of articulation about what happens and what you'll find when, you know, and, and uh, I know, uh, Andrew, you're, 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 you're seeing a Lacanian psychoanalyst at the moment, right? It's uh, when you go, and I, I did this, you, you know, after, you know, I mean, you go to like, you, know, you sit in your analyst and you're speaking and you go, oh, yes. And, and you bring out all the very, I think I'm in the imaginary, you know, I think that there's been a fragmentation in the symbol. The, a good analyst would say, stop using those terms, right? <laughs> Just stop it, you know, stop using those terms altogether. Just because it's a question of being able to bring in free association. But the analysts themselves are not listening to meaning. They're not listening to what's being said. They're listening to how things are being said. And the only thing that come, that you bring back to the person, and this is why I'm trying to get people to spiritual directions, but what you bring back to them and you're reflecting back to them is what's from them. You know, and then in that process of discernment, you know, a nice Ignatian term, what they're what they're listening to and what you're throwing back at them or mirroring back to them, you know, they can they can start to engage in a type of reflective practice, if you wish. And you know, they can find something and you know, maybe it'd move them onto it. I I think you know, you know, that's something that's that's always been in the Catholic Christian most forms of spiritual direction from Ignatian spiritual direction wherever and i believe lacan brought that over um you know in a, in a in a different way um in the process of of spiritual of of psychoanalysis and he says it in in a key quote in the book you know he says that psychoanalysts and psychologists have to uh, learn from this discipline called spiritual direction which uh, you know, psychoanalysts have only looked at through a spyglass. You know, I think he's having a pop at Charcot there, you know, he says. But it's this idea, and I think the first thing, you know, of trying to get people to understand Lacan, not as a pure theoretician, but as someone who, you know, is a pra as a practitioner, as someone who can offer something of a, a type of reflective practice or discernment exercise, that thing we call spiritual direction, it can only happen as a type of lived practice of listening, dialogical, a way of speaking, an engagement in the social bond. Um, and so, yeah, that does that answer your question? It, it, it does, and it resonates. I mean, as you're talking, like, I'm I'm just thinking back to, to instances where the epiphanies are had in those dialogical moments. You know, a monological setting where I am just, you know, preaching, teaching, conveying information. Um, there might be something that comes of that after the fact as I'm engaging one-on-one -on -one or in a smaller group of people. But to your point, it is when I'm able to create a space either one-on-one -on -one or even with a group where uh, words are being spoken and, and people have the opportunity to listen and mirror back what they're, you know, hearing from other folks. Like, those are the moments where the most... I don't know. I don't know what word I want to use. Epiphany, breakthrough, kind of, kind of light bulb moments happen. Yeah. It's, it's and you, well, you, a, a, a change in in worldview. You know, yeah. it's, uh, and I, I, that's why I like to uh, I like to talk about 
Um, I don't, and this, you know, this is something reflective in, in other writers. Sam Hall's just written a great book on John Lennon Cross, I'd recommend. But he argues that there's, you know, he's not using a psychoanalytic, he's, you know, di- going directly into, into the writings of it. And so he, he, he argues about encounter and transformation in language, in metanoia, you know, and, and if you, you can find this also in, in uh, Peter Tyler's book, which came you know, before I got, uh, returned to the mystical, but uh, talking about the writings of Teresa of Evola, engaging in this type of dialogue, this shared world uh, where you are engaging uh, in a dialogical way and reflecting, there, there can be these moments where your whole life world just completely changes. What Lacan offers, I think, and I think that this is the danger of, say, like um, a, cult, a completely cultural linguistic model, is that this this um, this uh, transformation doesn't just happen about you know getting a nice coherent narrative or a nice linear story that we can insert ourselves into. It's not. It's messy. It's about meaning just as much as it is about non-meaning. A word can resonate with us, and we don't know why, and it can, can change our world completely, a certain way of saying something, a rhythm. Um, and so it's that limit of, of, of language. And, you know, I, I, this is the problem with I, I generally think of narrative theory because it's that in itself becomes encapsulated in meaning. If we're focusing on spirituality as a part and parcel of the mystical tradition, it has to deal with the limits of meaning, non-meaning, and self-emptying, subjective destitution, uh, the dark night of the soul, what we call that transformative moment where one world changes into another, you know, and that's, you know, synonymous with what we can, a, resurre- a resurrection moment, you know. Uh, so it's, it's it's I no, I think that, that that you're right. And I remember years, you know, trying to get, you know, convince people in the pastoral theological world of of um, you know the theoretical value of Lacan, and it, it just no, it's like a magnet. It, it, it turning the other way, it pushes people away. And I think more and more, uh, the way to get people to see the power of transformative aspect of Lacan is yes, obviously there is the theoretical power of it, you know, and how it can be used as a heuristic device and interpretive device. But more than that, it's about how it trans how it can transform us into better listeners. Uh, I, don't I like that. I like that yeah. a lot. Yeah. Cadell, I'm wondering if you have something, cause I'm, I guess what I'm curious about is I, I, if I understand you correctly in your work, it doesn't seem like you have a direct interest in theology necessarily, but, but you're very into Lacan. I'm, I'm, I'm wondering how Mark's book has resonated with you or if, if there's anything that you might want to ask him. <clears throat> well, I, I can, I can contribute something that has been inspired in me from from listening to Mark, having a chance to reflect on on um, both our conversation, his book, and and what he's just sort of presented here today. You know, I don't want to be too obscure. Um, I want to be mindful of what's already been said, uh, and hopefully um, say something that can be very practical for uh, the people who are more theologically minded. But I want I want to start with that axiom by Hegel where he says the secrets of the ancient Egyptians were secrets of the ancient Egyptians themselves. And what I want to say, what I always say here is this, 
the secrets of the neoliberal digital capitalists were secrets for the neoliberal digital capitalists themselves. Okay, so when I think political theology, I'm thinking in terms of attention economy and screens, and I'm thinking in terms of overdetermination by capital. Giannis Varoufakis has the idea of techno-feudalism going in this direction. So what I want to emphasize is Marx's emphasis, which I think is so important, which is self-help and positive experience reify the imaginary, and that this is a capitalist attention economy capture. Yeah, I agree. This is capitalist attention economy, and what it does is it exploits our desire to be seen and heard. Right, the vision and the voice. Right, even we're participating in it now in some some sense, and it's 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 a parasitizing of the imaginary. Right, I can feel the anxiety in my body right now. Right, in in contrast to positive experience. Right, and and I want to propose in regards to what Mark was saying about Lacan and scant freedom, that actually in the attention economy, what's real freedom in the attention economy? It's the capacity to disappear. Yeah. I was right. funny you just said this. I've just written an article on the ethics of hiddenness. It on, is, on, on but this, this is this is this is what the bill. This like if you look at like billionaires, they just disappear. Like most of them, yeah, like yeah, some yeah. of them, some of them want. Some of them are like Elon, Musk, but not ninety percent of them just disappear. Just disappear. Right. right? It's, it's the disappearance, not the attention. That the, the attention is the slavery. Right. So, so to me, when I'm thinking about political theology. What I'm thinking of in Marx's framework is what are the conditions of possibility for beings in language to work through the symbolic for our scant freedom? And I think that here there is political theological revolutionary potential because it involves, I think, the negativity of language in familial intimate context. And that means working through, like, like if, if we're alone, we get stuck in entrepreneurial models right if we lose family if we lose intimate foundation we just get caught in the capitalist attention economy so i think but at the same time family obviously there's just a fundamental negativity there right to work through like a marriage and kids and all the things that come with that and extended family network right so to me that's where i'm thinking about when mark emphasizes in his book grace it's in antagonism. When he emphasizes excess, it's in disruption. When he emphasizes God, it's in uncertainty. And can we think about these things in the familial context? Um, and here, I might bring a weird connection, and then I'll stop. Is I think with this conversation of psychoanalysis and theology, we need to think the Father. Mm -hmm. Because it seems to me like there's an immediate connection there. In the sense that I, I don't know how many, how much emphasis it's gotten in, in the literature. I could just be poorly read on it. But it seems like in the Accrete, Lacan is pointing towards the condition of possibility for a father. He's, he's thinking about the father. And what does it mean to be a father? As almost like, the not like in any sort of final, any of Aristotle's four causes, but as a first cause. And the interesting thing that I, 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 I thought was when Lacan's reflecting on what the subject wants, he says the subject either wants a dead father or a father that has perfected desire. 
In other words, the subject of the drive. And I think this is what's lacking when we're dominated by the imaginary. Mm-hmm. We don't have any fathers. No, I think that, you because know. everyone's dominated by the imaginary. So uh, I end there. I'll end there. That's so no, no, good. It's, it's, it's so good. It's, it's, so, um, I've re, you know, I can see that David's got to run, but thank, thank you very much for for uh, um, your conversation, and you know, thank you for taking the time to read the book. Yeah, I'm David, really, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, no problem. I got it. Yeah, sorry guys, um, but I, I feel bad. I love what Cadell just said, where this is going. So I will definitely listen back, and I'm excited. So take care, y'all. Okay, peace. So just uh, I think you know we the, the attention economy so I you know talking about the book we we have the birth of what we call the experience economy um and then I I argue that we segued from there to the attention economy and you know we can call this the larger as, uh, aspect of you know the uh, the screen economy as such and you know it is part if we're talking about what neoliberal capitalism is now that's what it is. Uh, to the extent that, you know, actual living products, you know, sort of actual products like tangible things don't really exist as much anymore. It's all about the the purveying, purveying, uh, giving pure experience through the screen, so to speak. And so, you know, uh, we can speak of um, the liberal capital, neoliberal capitalism as a type of spiritual direction as such an ersatz one insofar that it just cons and we can see this how saturated it is that's a key term and andrew brought this up uh, but we can see how saturated it is with these sort of self-help technologies it's absolutely everywhere and more than this what you find is a type of uh, shrinking of language and so you know, you mentioned Cadell this this anxiety. You know, one of the the experiences I think, and you can see that when, because of the attention economy, people lose attention quickly in conversation. Yeah, people don't have the ability to be able to focus on it. So you'll find people trying to say what they need to say as quickly as possible, or shrinking down key nuance to. Um, you know, nice little snippets. You know, people can't, you know, even the question of listening has sort of gone out the window. What we find now is we write more. We are scriptorian beings. You know, and, I th- and what you said before about the idea that, you know, in this economy, you know, Byung Chul Han writes about it, the idea that we are all caught in this sort of endless proximity where we are all seen. And to be seen, it means that we change our presentation phenomenologically to others. We um, we, be, we we want to present ourselves in a quantifiable way, which exchange ourselves or the importance of narrative for information. And this information is, is uh, something that malforms us. It stops us as we. It's it stops um, our ability to be able to express ourselves fully as human beings as we change ourselves into products. And I think that what you said about billionaires just vanishing is a key thing. You know, I think that in this world of constant proximity and being seen and our attention constantly being gripped by this economy, the idea 
of being able to vanish or, or claw back our attention in some way is important. And I think that that involves reclaiming our language or reclaiming our ability to be able to speak and listen in different ways. Um, and I think Lacan and John of the Cross is absolutely key for this. And, you know, I remember Simone Day, she says that, um, she says the ultimate form of love that you can give to someone is to give someone their, your attention. To give someone your full attention is the purest, for, is, a, is a powerful form of love. And the purest form of love, she says, is unmixed attention. And unmixed attention in and of itself is prayer. Mm. Okay. And, you know, this, this to me, you know, prayer as a, you know, not, I mean, obviously we're talking in, you know, formalized ways, but even at a theoretical level, prayer as a way of speaking, as a way of engaging in the writing of ourselves, to imagine ourselves not as praying, but as prayers. You know, it's, it can be a way of disrupting this scriptorian hellscape. <laughs> That yeah, it. No, that's, that's really good. Uh, so, I, I wonder, Luke, so, if you have something you wanted to share. I know, I know you haven't had a chance to talk yet. Uh, is there anything that's coming up for you? Yeah. Um, well, my, my favorite contemporary Zen teacher is goes by the name of Adya Shanti. Adya Shanti? Adya Shanti. And uh, one of his... One of his shticks is that, you know, you have this that this uh, culture of spirituality, and you have all these these consumers of spirituality who are who go to conferences, who who attend online seminars, and uh, there's all this seeking for this. Uh, this kind of numinous spiritual experience. Mm -hmm. And he says repeatedly, you know, the thing about any experience, whatever it is, whether it's just pure hedonism or a spiritual experience, it doesn't matter, is that it ends. <laughs> it ends. Yeah. From the experience that it ends. It can last a month, but it's going to end. Right. And uh, at the same time, uh, this is a writer who, like other Zen teachers, is partly trying to produce a certain kind of experience. Um, but there's uh, uh, these teachers, uh, you find this in Zen and in Advaita Vedanta, they're pointing to something that is other than what happens in experience, but it's not other than experience itself. It's sort of this groundless ground of every experience that you miss by seeking a certain kind of experience through, nice a, yeah. through an accumulation of experience, right? Um, and so one of my critiques of Lacan is that uh, sort of all of consciousness is unequivocally egoic and imaginary, Frequently, when he talks about consciousness, consciousness is imaginary, right? Uh, but what what these teachers are trying to say is that, oh, yeah, well, the stuff, all the stuff in consciousness, they're not using the language of the imaginary. That would be imaginary. But um, there's something foundational to, to consciousness that 
in my work, I try to say escapes the imaginary and egoic closure, that there's this dimension of our subjectivity within consciousness that can step back from the ego. Uh, the consciousness of having, because we have a, we can have a consciousness of having an ego. So far as we have a consciousness of having an ego, there's something in consciousness is not the ego. Um, so um, I, I, I'm almost wholeheartedly your, agree with your critique of experientialism, but in some of the experientialist thinkers that you pointed to, whether it's Sly or Mocker or Carl Jung, I think there are elements that can be retained and can be helpful. No, I completely agree. No, I, you know, if I come across as uh, as as bombarded, it's only because of space and stuff. But you know, I was teaching Carl Jung, you know, and you know, there's there's stuff in Jung that's amazing. You know, it's it's uh, and you know, it's it his work on the shadow, for instance. I'm I'm planning to write a book on Jung and Lacan. It's uh, and you know, it's there hasn't been any work uh, on 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 the two. Well, there's never you know to try and get to psychoanalytic thinkers together to think in a dialogical way is even more difficult of trying to get two continental uh, philosophers to, to to put together but it it's you know young is inc- is incredibly important you know in terms of the, the work that he's done especially in regards to the shadow um and shadow work and you know it's a bit asking questions about the relationship to the shadow to the real is is something that's you know of fundamental interest but i'm interested in in this idea of if you know lacan is offers this sort of derogatory idea of consciousness of experience as such as being related only to the ego and you're you're saying that we can this is you know a truncated idea of what what the ego is if you read these spiritual writers they offer a way of being able to locate uh, consciousness, not just at this sort of, uh, you know, delineated level, but there is also, to, to forgive the phrase, you know, a, um, an ego of the real, or an, a, um, a consciousness of the real that's beyond this, that, you know, points to transcendence. That is, you know, something that, that sounds... What did you say the name of the writer was? Uh, again, I forget, I've got short-term memory problems. Uh, this uh, is Adyashanti. Adyashanti. Okay. Um, is he is he Zen? Is it Zen? Zen? Yeah, okay. I'll, I will I will look this up. Thank you. I'll definitely look this up. So as as we maybe come a bit to a close, I'm thinking of you, Andrew or Cadell. Do, do y'all have any kind of final comments or questions that that you want to kind of throw out there? Um. Sure. Yeah. Uh, especially off of Cadell's point about uh this. Um, going off of the saturated phenomenon or like the saturation of what we see in the digital age and of of, of neoliberalism today. Um, I think one of the important uh, concepts and vanishing mediators that we see that makes one oscillate between, um, as Cadell said, this dead father or someone who's mastered the, the drive or someone who's mastered desire, which I would think would be a more towards perversion is the superego. And I think the superego at one point maintains this distance from realizing the unconscious and traumatic real of the core of subjectivity. 
this negativity and at the same time promising with the the fantasy that it encapsulates with the axiom of enjoy the super ego is is at once uh, a persecutory but also at the same time um insistent that you enjoy without any limitations this vague enjoy enjoy keeps one continuously striving at an impossibility um and yet you're never satisfied lacan um equates the relationship between the superego and the drive in seminar two um with a joke of an idiot boy who goes to a funeral after having seen the family for so long saying many happy returns and he gets beat up and the family's like you don't say that you say may god rest his soul and so he goes to a wedding two weeks later and right when the groom was about to say his vows and i do he says may god rest his soul and so whether it's psychoanalysis or spiritual direction you always learn from error and i think that there is a, a sort of um dialectic between a failure that keeps one repeating and then a dialectic to kind of overcome one's symptom um, or in spiritual direction through this failure because of you know the key of language is the naming your desire um and i think whether it's psychoanalysis proper or mark's uh lacanian uh reading of a new type of spiritual direction uh language naming your desire which is something retroactive kind of brings about something new which keeps one from falling into this insistence of error of experientialism um which is you know dictated by um the irrationality of the superego yeah no, just you know it's a really interesting uh point that you just said because uh michelle de Certieu, yeah. uh, who was lacan's student and also one of the greatest spiritual writers full stop you know in terms of he wrote a whole like huge tome on the history of spiritual direction. He's in his uh, he, are they his heterologies text. He says that uh, you look at Lacan, look at the writings of John of the Cross, and you can see this in relation to uh, Lacan. You'll see that both are writings of failure, insofar that John of the Cross say, states, uh, or all of the mystics. The object that they're getting at, this objective enjoyment, it is not it, it is not it, it is not it, it is not it. And yeah, I think that, you know, the idea of this, uh, we are caught in this logic, in the, if we're, and I said, you know, this this structure that we're in is a type of Ertzat spiritual direction that directs us to constant enjoyment. And yes, and you can see that we are in, you know, this, that we see a type of, um, you know, the absence of the father is always a return of the father in terms of superego um, injunction, the injunction to enjoy, uh, that, that that closes gaps, that end, that saturates us with this sort of false plenum uh, where we are constantly driven towards satisfaction in this sort of you know, disembodied di- digital reality where everyone can have every experience but ultimately owns nothing. You know, it's uh, you know, um, I I I think that this this is is definitely true, and we see this also in the production of you know, even within this sphere, people are constantly trying to seek out spiritual guides. The constant, you know, the turning to the Father, pure version, the perversion. There's something perverse in the production of 
digital social daddies, you know, <laughs> the Jordan Petersons, the Andrew Tates, the the the, the, the constant searching. What does I can't say? You're uh, billionaires by spiritual. Yes, it's a uh, it's but it's the constant this per, per, uh, turning to the father precisely because of this absence the absence of the father, which in turn is also uh, the reproduction of a type of fiction of the um, superego. So, yeah, I can, I agree. Um, and I think that what I'm trying to do is offer a spiritual direction that's that's the opposite of that, or at least trying to outline the beginnings of it, trying to start a conversation about it, trying to formulate a practice that, again, is always and will be full of errors. You know? Yeah. So, Cadell <laughs> or Luke, I mean, is there anything y'all would want to end on? I, I know y'all have contributed some... I would just I would just say uh, this is a, a great start to an investigation uh, and a conversation around around Mark's work that I think feels very uh, needed and productive. Um, just want to say that I uh, really appreciated what Andrew said about the drive and the superego that that something clicked there for me that 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 I'm going to keep thinking on. Um, and also, um, I wanted to emphasize in relationship to, I think, the importance of what Luke was saying on pure hedonism and spiritual experience when he's saying it ends, hmm. that I think that that this is the importance of, of sublation in Hegel, that it's, it's precisely the fact that it ends, and I think he goes through this in the Phenomenology of Spirit, that sort of leads to the breaking and the, the falseness of, of sense immediacy and, and, and I guess a hedonistic uh, mode of being. Um, and then I guess just a, a final uh, reflection. Um, there's just not, not enough time, but I, I really liked what Mark was saying about we are prayers mm. and, and also the connection to attention, um, the connection to, to Simone Veil. Um, lots more to say, but uh, really appreciate you holding space, uh, Kike, and uh, yeah. thanks for the invite. Yeah, thank absolutely. you for inviting. Yeah, thank you all so much for being here, and thank you, Mark, for writing such an incredible book. Thank you for taking the time to to read it, and you know I'm, I'm appreciative of the, to have this conversation. But it's also just the final reflection that just sure. came to me there. We're talking about the end, an end of an experience, but we are you know, talking about the importance of the end of analysis, right? The ends of analysis is an, is an important thing, but it also brings up questions about what is the end of spiritual direction, which I think one of the things that's different about the end. Um, one, of, this is something that was you know, from my old theological training, is that spiritual direction does not have an end. Well, it ends in God, you know, it, it ends in something bigger. While psychoanalysis, the difference of it, it always has an end. Now, whether that end is one of failure about the limits and limitations of it, about what it can actually do, or about coming to terms with a symptom. And it's always about the dealing of a symptom. Maybe it's a question of where does one start and where does the other begin? I don't know. It was just a reflection, something to think on. But it's, oh, it I like it. Something that, yeah. yeah, it's great. Um, well, well, thank you, guys. Thank you so much, guys, yeah. and thank you for this. It was great. Okay, until next time. All right, thank you. <laughs>